Every team, every topic, everywhere, this is Believe. Welcome to the Sci-Fi Sci, a podcast about black science fiction, fantasy, and staying on the same page in this relationship. I am one of your incredible co-hosts, Amber Wallen. I'm Ben. Hey, Ben. Welcome to the show. And listeners at home, welcome to episode 29 of the Sci-Fi Side. If you're new to the show, hello and welcome. You're in for a treat. You know we got some new followers on the TikTok, so I had to give them a little special greeting. Okay, Ben is rolling his eyes at me. Today on episode 29 of the Sci-Fi Side, we're going to be talking about Walter Mosley's book, Future Land. Just so you know, there's going to be some spoilers for the book, It came out in 2001, but we're really going to dig deep in some of the characters today. Also, if you haven't read the book, it's all good because we're going to make it so that you can still interact with the content, if you will. That's what we do, if you will. So, Ben, why don't we start by talking a little bit about why you chose this book? Listeners, if you don't know, Ben chooses most of our material and he always is, you know, quite meticulous and thorough with his choices. So we just want to hear a little bit about what was the inspiration behind this book. So Nisi Shaw recommended this book, an amazing science fiction writer. And this is one of the books you need to read if you want to understand black science fiction. And so I decided to have my science fiction book club also read this because we are a classic science fiction book club. And Every book that we choose to read needs to be 20 years, published 20 years before the day that we read it. So this was a book that I chose for my science fiction book club, and it was nice to kill or to, I don't want to say kill two birds with one stone because it's so violent. (laughs) What's a better analogy? Maybe this was... Sweetheart. It was like... It's like a two for one at, at, you know, your local fast food eatery. Right. It was like a threesome. Right. Yep. I the love- science fiction <laughs> book club and then the sci-fi podcast. And who's the third party? I'm me. Oh, okay. I like that. It was like a threesome. I was sandwiched between both of them. Sexually. Um, but sci- but metaphorically. I mean, that's going to be our new graphic for the show. Like you having a threesome with two books. I'm here for that. I Yes. Ben. Me too. What are your, you know, when you first told me that you're in a science fiction book club and books can only be read by authors that published those books 20 years ago, I don't know. I feel kind of kind of a way. I feel like y'all are missing out on so many great books. What Like these new and upcoming authors really don't have a chance in the club. But so tell me what, what draws you to a classic science fiction book club? Oh, because we would never read them if, it, if we didn't have that economy of uh. the law. Because we're readers. Everyone in that book club reads maybe four or five books a month. You know, we're talking a book a week. They're a bunch of nerds like me and very, very smart people. Mm-hmm. And so we're like, okay, let's read these older books. And they all talk terribly about women. There's so few books that actually have women as great characters. That's a huge trend that we notice, unless the book is written by a woman. Would you say that most of the book clubs that you join are like specific in that way, especially like the sci-fi ones? Because you not, you know, you you are a professional nerd. You're not just in one book club. You in like two or three, well, and the I, one with me, I guess. Well, I was, but I was in this library book club where I think the average age was seventy-five. <laughs> And I love this book club so much. I actually really miss them. But since COVID, 
I'm actually very terrified to go back to see if maybe some of them might not have made it. Oh man. Well now now we have to segue because that's that's sad. I don't I don't know how to feel about that. That is sad. Well, you were saying the other day you were like, I really want to go back and visit my old book club, and I was like, what for? It's in a different neighborhood. We've moved. You're already in a new book club that you seem to really be enjoying. But I kind of see why maybe you said that now. I forgot there's the third book club I'm in. There's a great, awesome, like, record store and bookstore called Buckets of Blood in Chicago. And that is more of, like, millennial, Gen X type of, you know, group. So it's actually quite interesting because my classic science fiction book club is generally, it's pretty, like, middle-aged I would say middle age to Gen X. And then the Blackstone Science Fiction Fantasy Book Club in Hyde Park is more retired folk or close to be retired. And then there is the Gen X, like millennial book club at Buckets of Blood. And they're all specifically science fiction. Can I ask you a question? Do book clubs cost money? To join because like every one of my hobbies costs money like you know my my yoga stuff and that's a way that we form community and make friends and talk about philosophy but I feel something makes me feel like book clubs don't they're un they're they're unspoken costs for example at buckets of blood I go there and if I were to go there for a year and never buy a book it'd be a little weird we'll go there choose a book and the book owner. If he doesn't have the book, he'll order a couple for us if we're going to buy them there. Or he, we choose a book, he already has them in stock, and then after the book club, because the bookstore is shut down, uh, when we do the book club, you have to, like, knock in, and he, like, lets you in, and then you, like, go in the back where all the books are stored. He has, like, these tables and stuff. Uh, it's just so, such a cool vibe. So there's an unspoken cost. Like, you, you should buy your books for the next book at the bookstore. The Meetup Book Club, which is the classic science fiction book club, you do have to pay a little bit of dues. And then finally, the Blackstone Book Club, you go there and you pay your taxes to support the library. You know, to Staffel. Have you heard of to Staffel? I have not. All right. So Robert Heinlein, great science fiction author, one of the classics, uh, wrote this book called The Moon is a Harsh Mistress. Mm-hmm. And in it, he sort of runs some of his politics. And one of them is this idea of called to staffle. There ain't no such thing as a free lunch. Oh, yes. I've heard of that, like, concept in philosophy. Right. But that comes from a science fiction author. Look at you. Finally. Wow. I didn't know that. It's so interesting now, like, where we are in our relationship. I know we're going to get to the book, I promise. But because when we first started dating, I truly didn't understand like that you needed this much time to read and that you were actually going to book clubs like I would tell my friends like Ben just likes to spend hours by himself in or out of the house and they're like well maybe he's I don't know maybe he is he's running these streets maybe he's out here you know talking to other people and and being shady and sketchy but oh that's funny that's so far from (laughs) it's like no he is at his third book club with the the median age of 75 discussing walter mosley yeah well also it's so everybody needs to be in some sort of environment when they're where they're interacting with people who are you know baby boomers 
you have to. You need to be interacting with people who are older than you, like way older than you. Yeah. Because I, one of the book clubs at Blackstone, there's an older retired teacher from CPS, and he's probably in his um, in his 80s. And this man just dropped the knowledge all the time. Or it was really cool. One time we read a collection of short stories that celebrated what was it, the 30th anniversary of Star Wars, They were the first movie being released. Um, yeah, I think it was, yeah, the 30th anniversary. And so all of them went around talking about when they were in college and going to see the first Star Wars and sharing about how this was just an amazing experience. But one of the guys who, who is like a big Star Trek fan, he, he left the movie theater saying... Well, it wasn't Star Trek. That was his. <laughs> and I just thought that was the greatest. Or uh, one was saying, like, that uh, one woman was sharing how she went to go see it with her father and that she immediately got in line again and, like, made her father, you know, well, both her and her father immediately got in line again to go watch it again. Wow. Like, after watching it the first time. So these cultural ph- phenomenons that I never got to experience, but I only get to hear it vicariously when I'm interacting with an older group of people. And you can only really do that in certain settings. I mean, I don't, we don't go to church. I'm not religious. Well, I'm religious, but just don't have time for church so far. But book clubs are a great way. Church is a great way to meet older folk. I sort of felt that way about, like, when I was starting to go to sorority grad chapter meetings. And I know that, like, you know, sororities can be, like, really uppity and and implementing discipline in women in some weird ways, but it was really powerful to be around women who were, like, 30 years older than me and, like, bosses at their job, like, and not just, like, judges and lawyers and doctors, but, like, boss, like, interior designers, and you've published a book, and so I, I think it's, you should always have some sort of, not not mentorship, but it's, like, you kind of have a life that I could see myself living one day and uh, you're somebody I want to be around. It's like these people, these women, these women. Yes. These like older black women who are just like matriarchs and independent ladies and bosses. Speaking of bosses, Walter Mosley is a boss when it comes to mystery crime writing. He's like one of the grandmasters of mystery fiction. But here's the interesting thing. When a genre writer from another genre sort of bleeds into science fiction or maybe a literature genre writer decides to tap into science fiction, what I've discovered is that they don't really know the genre too intimately. And there's sort of two ways writers can do this. And we were talking about this a little bit where... For example, let's think hip hop or R B and B. R and B. You're R&B? thinking of R and B and then Airbnb. Well, I listen to R and B in my Airbnb. <laughs> yes. Good. I'm not editing that out, so just just keep going. Well, there, okay. There's two ways a musician will tap into that. They'll Miley Cyrus the situation where she'll like be like, I'm gonna twerk for a month, and then be like, Nah, that's not for me. Yeah, and then sort of, like, talk down on the genre. It's like, you weren't, you're a guest here. Like, yeah. Or, what's the other way to do it? The other way to do it is maybe, like, David Guetta, who he sort of mixes things from different genres, mm-hmm. right? So you have, like, your standard, like, hip-hop, R&B stars. That's what they do. They'll always do that. People who dip their 
their foot in but are not really respectful of that and then run away and then people who borrow from it but do something different and are respectful of the genre i feel like walter mosley falls into more of like the david guetta i'm not a huge pop music fan so Mm -hmm. correct me instead of like a miley cyrus where he for Futureland, at least, he definitely felt for me he had read Neuromancer by William Gibson, which is the premier sort of cyberpunk novel. And Futureland borrows a lot from cyberpunk, where there is technology that you like insert into yourself. So, for example, one of the technologies in here are called a third eye, which is almost like Google Glass. You remember Google Glass? Yes, like the when Google was trying to advertise, like, buy these new glasses for all these things. Oh, it was one of the biggest fails ever. It was a fail. On the Miley Cyrus tip, just really quickly, it's interesting because I think an artist can dabble a little bit in those different genres if they have already set, like, a base layer for what they do well. Let's, like, let's, for example, the, the late, the late, great, not late, the great Beyonce, right? The entity that is Beyonce. So Beyonce had her own brand at first. It was, like, you know, girl's time to Destiny's Child to her own solo brand, which is why then when Lemonade came around, it felt really nice and refreshing to hear Beyonce do uh, a country track, to be, to hear Beyonce working with Jack White from the White Stripes. So that's that's where it works, which I, in, in thinking back, I think the Miley thing didn't work because Miley hit the block day one as Hannah Montana, which kind of wasn't her, her. It was Hannah Montana. And then, like, the the next day, she's, like, wearing Jordans with a shaved head. So we're like, oh, she's probably going to do this hip-hop thing for a while. She did this breakaway. And then later, she's doing, like, her Taylor Swift thing. And then later, now she's in this, like, Joan Jett mullet phase. So it's... And I like Miley. I've been to her concerts. But I think that was what was so frustrating about Miley is that she does sort of rock a genre, rock a look, and then later sort of say, like, I'm over that. I've evolved. When really, it's just like, you never sort of had your own sound to then dabble into these categories. Like, she's a phenomenal singer, but I don't, I, I think she would do great at a Super Bowl because you, you got quite a catalog, but Party in the USA was very different from all of these things. So, yeah. That makes sense. I think for me, the idea, you can, you can, of course, you can dabble all into it. It's just when people dabble into things that they don't know that there's an entire conversation going mm-hmm. into this. When, when I was like, I'm a dabbler in this, you know? Right. In a way, like, but I I already have my own, like, quirky and funny personality. So it's like, I, I would never go to a, a book club and then try to, like, well, now I'm a nerd now. Now I need to do all the things now. It's just like, I can appreciate this and also still, like, do the things that I love. For an extreme case, someone might write a common science fiction idea and think that they're revolutionary and not even know that this science fiction idea is actually a trope and it's been dealt with Mm. a million times and a lot of people will discover like i've had people come up to me and be like oh i have this great science fiction idea i'm like there are hundreds of stories like this short stories because science fiction genre really shines in short stories and science fiction writers have been writing science fiction short stories for you know what 80 years now really intensely so you, you don't you don't let them share their story idea with you, or you or you stop them. Well, at the door I with that? I hear it, and I'm like, this is a stupid idea. Ooh, you know because ooh, child, man. Well, I mean, at least you're honest with them, I guess. And no, I say it in my head. I don't say it to them. It's like. So what do you say to them with your fake I'm like, ass? Oh, 
oh yeah, like you should definitely write that story down. <laughs> or or I'll be like, oh something I'll I'll say is like, what science fiction have you read? You know. Ah, that's a good. That is like, a oh, good. You know, like I remember somebody once telling me, I think it was at a drag party. Them, drag no, them. No. Well, they had mentioned. <laughs> Um, like, oh man, it, like what happens? Like if you, you're talking about time travel, like what happens? You go back, but you have like sex with yourself, but you had a sex change and then that person is like pregnant. I'm like, oh yeah, that, that's like a common thing. It's called the, you know, the grandfather paradox or whatever, or I'm my own grandfather type of thing. And that story was done already. Robert Heinlein did that story. So you wouldn't know that unless you had read science fiction and that's a very all you zombies is the name of the story that's a very very famous story it was made into a movie so it was just a little strange sometimes to to read even like science fiction authors or literature authors who you know put a science fiction theme they don't call it science fiction for example the road is a science fiction novel it was written by cormac mccarthy it's post-apocalyptic but the road was celebrated and lifted up as this great novel. I'm like, science fiction writers have been thinking about post-apocalyptic worlds for years and years and years. Like, why is this man held up? There's lots of great science fiction authors. And that's sort of what happens in music all the fucking time. Yeah. Especially when white rappers do something. like. Yeah, you get, like, just praise because it's like, yeah, but we haven't seen a white person do this. Well, yeah, and I, I don't like, think... yes, we have. Yeah. We actually have that, that too. We, yeah, we have. Well, you know, getting let's get right into this book because for me, Walter Mosley, I think, who is not, you know, knee-deep in the science fiction community, he's a mystery genre writer, but he writes this amazing collection of short stories. There's mm-hmm. nine stories, and unlike a lot of anthologies or collections, these stories are deeply... Um, intertwined with each other characters pop in and out and that makes it just one of the best I think one of the best short story cycles I've read we love a callback it's sort of like a I don't know like a soap opera if you're not super familiar with those short story cycles this would be more like uh, what is give me a show parallel I would say be like Black Mirror Black Mirror but I've I've never watched a Black Mirror episode where somebody from like a past season came up Oh, okay. So I guess you, I don't watch them. Yeah, a lot. you haven't you haven't watched all Black Mirror then, because a lot of the technology in Black Mirror is referenced, or situations are actually referenced. They'll actually show items that showed up in previous episodes. Got it, but not the characters. Not necessarily the characters. Okay, yes, that makes but, sense. Well, think about Black Mirror, but if characters came back up, and so these these stories are all functioning on like possibly like different timelines. No, they're functioning on the same timeline. Well, some of them aren't, but like in the first book, the one character is a kid, like he's like a four-year-old, and then in the later book, he's like a 27-year-old. Right, so he was, yeah, so it it's a linear timeline. I got you. All right, let's do like a general overview of the book. I know we've been talking like, you know, 20 minutes. Let's give just like bare bones what is the big story about? This kind of science fiction we call near future science fiction. So if it's it's written two thousand one, there are references to events that happened ten years later in two thousand twelve. For example, in two thousand twelve, the social security number system goes bust, and there's a new kind of way of self identification. That's 
sort of the the kind of genre we're getting into called near and i think this is actually the first near science fiction collection that we've read so near science fiction and essentially some of the technology in this world is that corporations have gained even more power they're in charge of basically all the laws every city has this underbelly sort of thinking. Us by Jordan Peele. That's what I kept thinking. Yeah. Oh, that's a like great. The, the underground people. Yeah. There's this underground people, but they're not like zombies or monsters. They're actual people. And they live in these like intense tight pods and overpopulation has taken over sort of, you know, standard predictability of if people keep having babies. This is what it's going to look like. And so they're called, I think, backgrounders, I think, called the, the place is called the background or common, like common ground. ground. Common ground. So it's called common ground. And basically you eat rice and beans and you live in these little cubicles and you just sit around in these waiting rooms waiting for a chance to be hired. Yeah, and it's like solitary confinement it's, almost. It's prison. But then there are actual prisons as well where they run experimental tests because when you are a prisoner, sort of like, America now, you you lose all rights. Where now I think America is trying to stop that. They're trying to... Like, especially when you get out of prison, there's people are trying to create more, like, transitional programs. And exactly. Like that, but... but in this world, that's not possible. Mm-hmm. Like, you're... When you lose all rights, you stop becoming a human in prisons in this world. So it's... Uh, what, what else? What are the other big switches? I would say the book would happen anywhere from, like... Maybe 2012 to like 2055, mm-hmm. like that's the chunk of time. Even even the people who are not like if we're if we're making this like you know levels to this shit. So you got the common ground at the very bottom, I would say, which is worse than jail. Then you have like prisoners who are in jail having experiments tested on them. Then even above that is sort of just like this the working class who is just devoted to complete employment cycles. So everybody is just working nonstop in in what feels like factory jobs. And and all conversations are work-based. Everything is like, hey, make sure you don't do this, make sure you don't do that, because you don't want to be on an unemployment cycle. So a a lot of the dialogue there. So working class, I would say, is the vast majority of the population. And then you have, like, these rich corporations and world leaders. It's like, at at the very top of everything, it's like Dr. Kismet, right? And who is sort of like a robot. Uh, no, Dr. Kismet is... Or like an evil genius or something. He, yeah, he sort of is this man who has his own island thinking of... This is why I like Walter Mosley. Dr. Kismet is probably a huge reference to the island of Dr. Moreau, mm-hmm. H.U. Wells. And so Walter Mosley has done his research. And so he's this evil genius who essentially wants to control the world I don't think he's necessarily too evil. That's what I like about him because in his mind, he is simply trying to be the benevolent dictator mm-hmm. and he creates this thing called Info Church. That's a big part about this book. There's this new kind of religion started by Dr. Kismet called Info Church where science becomes the primary form of religion and where you seech where you search out for God, essentially. That's mm-hmm. sort of the the big um, change there. And Info Church is as big as Catholicism, and Catholicism is the largest denomination of Christianity in the world. So the fact that there's this new science religion called Info Church that 
is as big as Catholicism is is pretty um, is a pretty major shift in our world from today. So let's talk about some of the. I mean, there are, like Ben said, there are nine short stories. Let's talk a little bit about some of the standout characters. Like, even without looking, like which characters really spoke to you the most? Maybe just two or three. Well, you mentioned that in this world, going to common ground is as worse as going to jail. And so, for example, there's this character, Neil, who ends up finding himself working at essentially a Google, right? A very caring, nurturing workplace. When he used to be like a factory worker, like yeah. on the ground, like yeah, 18-hour workday. And at this point, there aren't like private corporations all the corporations are part of a government, like the corporations are government. And so you don't have, like if you were to start working somewhere, your requirement of working would be the same whether you worked for Google or Apple. Like for, you know, you don't really have, like different corporations don't have different standards of working. And for example, when you're in the workplace, there are like really strict sexual harassment law laws. Like you can't hug somebody from the opposite sex. Even if you're married, you can be put on, on an unemployment cycle. If you like go use the bathroom when you shouldn't, you'll be put on an unemployment cycle or you get basically a demerit system. Mm-hmm. You get like 17 of those marks or something. Yeah, there's it's pretty ridiculous. But this in this story, Neil, he discovers that there's this one secret group that sort of runs their program like Google because you find out that there's this supercomputer who's sort of trying to stop this alternate America from being so oppressive and awful to all its citizens. So in that, he ends up, the story called En Mass sort of leads to this decision where Neil has to decide whether he is going to continue breaking the law working at this place or he is going to be fired and go to common ground or he's going to be going to prison. You know, yeah. so it's and, like the ultimate cheaty if you're familiar with the good place. Like Neil's going through all these philosophical like work have a higher standard of living for myself and work for this like secret illegal society or keep like slaving away at this job that I'm eventually going to be fired from because if you if you have 17 marks and you've worked there for years, eventually you will hit the 17. I think he had already gotten three in the past two or three years. And, and one of the marks he got for like nodding off at the job or fainting, he fainted. And, you know, his body's response to like the shock and the overwork got him a demerit. So eventually you would have been axed out anyway. Yeah, so these the way the jobs work in this world is that it's not to the corporation's benefit to have someone work at a job long term. To core power. Yeah. So or or think of any charter school, right? So any sort of system where people can come and they can learn a new system easier. You get to pay them less. You don't have to worry about them slacking off. And so what they'll do, it's to the corporation's benefit to have high turnover rate, mm-hmm. which I found the burnout. Yeah, but but you burn burning but, your teachers out saves you money. Saves you money, exactly. And that's where I was like, oh, and they'll never run out of people who are excited for work. Yeah, because to get out of common ground, common ground is like basically a, a massive human beehive. Everyone is living on top of each other. So you you turn someone over, man, you grab someone right out, 
and that person's highly motivated, they get a little bit icky after six, you know, six, seven, eight months, then you kick them out, get someone else who's really excited, and it's a way to pull as much labor out of people as possible. In another story, we're going to keep talking about this one, but in another story, someone who had lived in common ground, like these two guys, right? And and this one, one of them had lived in common ground before, and he said to the other guy, like, hey, can you just, like, come sleep next to me? And the guy was like, are you trying to have sex with me? Like, what's going on? And he's like, no, I've just... I've lived in this, like, very dark place where people live right on top of each other. Like, I, ch- I don't really know how else to go to sleep or whatever. Electric, I like that Walter electric, Mo- Sorry. The story of that you're talking about is the electric eye. Yes. With yes. the detective. Folio yeah. Johnson and then Mingus Black. So Folio Johnson was this private detective who was hired to find out why all these guys were being assassinated. Mingus Black was one of the guys in this group there was this like small society where all of the men in that society were slowly being assassinated. So Mingus Black was like, hey, you're sort of my protector or you're this detective that's protecting us at this point. And at, at one point they were like on their way to go to bed. And he was like, can you just like besides you even being a detective and trying to protect me, like I actually need a physical body to lay next to me because of the trauma of once being in this common ground place. And it's so t- to to connect text to world there it's so interesting what's left on you, what's imprinted on you when you leave a toxic work environment, like, and not to the point where you need like your coworker to sleep next to you, but I don't know, you have recently, yet, tra- yet. yet. you have recently left uh, a toxic job or whatever. And even when you started at your new job, you started just noticing things that you were like, oh, my old school d- made me feel this way or made me feel guilty about whatever and now I'm sort of exploring like not feeling that guilt not feeling that overworkedness can you talk a little bit about that when you leave a place and you didn't expect the grass to be greener on the other side and you go there and you're like oh man this is not only not only is it grass but there's like orchards 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 and orchids are there's orchards and 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 orchids yes so it's not only is the grass is greener on the other side but you're like oh i've been in sort of mush mush and mud i think we are the the millennials are sort of the in my opinion there's probably some research to back this up as well the millennials are sort of the first wave of people who are allowed to sort of leave jobs for toxic work environments because you know like I've said in the past whenever I talk to my mom she's like y'all don't want to work hard yeah I know people that stay on the like let me back up when I talked to my grandmother the one who recently passed away she had maybe two jobs her entire life right or even our parents they've had one job for 30 plus years of course because they want to retire from that job but you meet I, w- I would say if you meet the average millennial, we've had like three, four, five, seven jobs because of side hustles, because of there's Instacart, there's Uber, there's ways for me to stabilize myself when I'm transitioning from job to job. Whereas back in the day, my grandma was like, there's a- they're not even hiring women, so there's no way I can complain about any job that I have. I- I'm glad we're in a stage where we're able to leave these toxic work cycles, but you know, my mom is like, well, what are you going to do next? How are you going to build a retirement? It's like, I can give into my own personal retirement. Like, that's actually an option now. It doesn't have to be through a job. I think Futureland taps into this entire distrust, millennial distrust of corporations. Mm-hmm. And at this point um, in 2001, when this is being written, 
I think we, you know, Rollerball had also come out. And so, uh, which What's is that, babe? Rollerball is a science fiction, classic science fiction movie that sort of deals with corporations as being like these awful places. And there's this game called Rollerball, which is essentially a way to keep the masses like drunk and in check, basically. It's great. It's a great movie. And so he is tapping into that. But I think millennials have internalized the fact that why should we be loyal to a corporation? And we're also recognizing, like, well, we got all this student debt. We can't afford to buy homes. Like, so why would I stay? And to that point, in Futureland, no, the, it's so rare for things to be bought. Ownership has basically become null and void in this world. So basically, when you have a home, you're being rented. And everything in that home, the chair, the towels, are all being leased. Mm -hmm. And so this one character moves at one point, goes on vacation, and he actually sees something that for sale, and he's shocked. He's shocked that he can actually buy something. So the book opened with a really great story about this little kid who lives with his grandma and his uncle, and they call him Popo, and his name is Ptolemy. The, the P is silent, and he's this, like, little kid genius, and I, I love it because he's it's the story sort of centers him as this, like, poor black kid who is, like, playing with the radio waves and can, can hear something on the other side. Is this, is that derivative or... Is that like calling back to a story before going back to you saying like Walter Mosley's done his homework with the Alan Dr. Moreau? So it. Because we've seen things like that before. Right. So basically he discovers this intelligence above the atmosphere. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And so that living planets is definitely a big science fiction theme. Uh, for example, there's a novel by Stanislaw Lem called Solaris. And mm -hmm. so he is tapping into that, but he is not creating a living planet. He's creating a living atmosphere, which is a little bit different. And I appreciated that difference. That difference, yeah. Yeah. Well, he's this little kid connecting with this living atmosphere. And Walter Mosley, what I really appreciate is things are science fictional but they're also very like realistic because what happens if a if there's this like kid genius on a farm somewhere here comes the government swooping in wanting to do tests on this child wanting to do research on this child and then uh, as this kid becomes like a 16 year old he creates some sort of technology and he puts these like I don't want to say like like hats on his grandma and his uncle and he ends up killing them uh, he's trying to like somehow like bring their consciousness somewhere else. He brings their consciousness up into that cloud. To, the, to that cloud, yeah. To the, to the cloud. So he technically didn't kill them, but in the eyes of the court, he was guilty. And so this kid, this genius, is sent to prison. And so the... I don't know. We're we're at the stage where it's like, do I want to read about more black pain and black trauma? No. But I think this story did a really great job of setting Ptolemy up as this... Sort I don't know, like a hero's journey, if you will, like because because it didn't end with Ptolemy like just riding in prison and then on to the next story. So the the, the setup of the short story cycle made me really want to see like, okay, is this is this sixteen year old kid genius gonna come back and how is he gonna be like woven through the stories? So I just thought that was a great like you know it's like 
what what's your opener? And that opener had me like hooked right away. The next story after that, which included one of my uh, second favorite characters, which she she wasn't in the book that much, but she when she was in the book, she was like that bitch in the book. So there's this like woman named Farah. She's like this like glamazon Amazon woman, and in this world women and men can box each other in boxing arenas. So she is going up against some of the, like, fiercest men. They they can't box each other. They can't box each other, but she is the tipping point in which she's... They, she's allowed to box She's them. allowed to box Got them. It. She's the first woman to box a man. Got it. Well... Oh, and, and it was able to happen in this world. Mm-hmm. And she, like, whoops this motherfucker's ass. Like, so I was, I was, I've never been so uh, intrigued by a boxing match in my life. I was just, like, turning each page um, to see how Walter Mosley was going to end the story because he set it up like these two boxers facing off each other. But the first story taught me that sometimes Walter Mosley will give you a very, like, but this is what would actually happen. So I, you, you know, sometimes these stories can feel very predictable. It's like, of course, the man gets the girl. Of course, the hero saves the day. But Walter Mosley had a a really delicate balance of, like, the good guys winning, the good guys losing uh, without throughout all the stories because it it just felt so like, no, this is what would happen in this world that he's created. Yeah, so we've gotten to the world building. You've gotten to some of the plot. I'm just going to give a brief overview summary, like where the plot is heading. So essentially, this world, as we said, fairly oppressive. Farah, though, sort of brings through her boxing, through her athleticism, brings equality, more mm-hmm. equality to, for women and men. She ends up going into politics to sort of bring even more equality and sort of use her political power to help others. Essentially, what we discover as the book continues is that there is neo-Nazism that mm-hmm. has infiltrated itself into the government. And this is where it feels very science fiction-y, um, almost like a Bond a bond story. Uh, and they have created a virus to kill all black people. And sort of there's hints throughout that in all the stories, and it sort of ends with the final chapter that this virus, though, backfires instead it kills all the white people. It's like mutated. It's mutated. It kills all the white people or anybody who doesn't have 12... 12.5% black blood. 12.5% black blood. So that's the, I would say that's the overarching narrative. And what I liked about Popo, Popo's first introduced and then he pops up throughout the stories and what he is doing is he is slowly discovering through the help of this super conscience that's given the name of unfit. So think of, you know, the matrix or something, a supercomputer consciousness or neuromancer. So Popo and unfit are working together to take down the Nazis. They end up doing it. And I think they are actually, because they use the way they do it is they shoot these, this virus with like an X-ray gun that I actually think mutated the virus. Mm-hmm. I think they it's were like the ones... some sort of flashlight. Yeah, I yeah. think they were the ones responsible for mutating the virus. And then that virus, like, ends up killing all the white people. And the story ends with a new world without white people. Or it, And it became sort of fun for me and Amber because what happens is that there are, like, white people who are, like, you know, maybe Nazis who discover that they have 12.5% African blood in them. Mm-hmm. 
as it goes. And it was also, I mean, not nice, but like given our, our new life now, we have experienced a world where a virus is rapidly spreading and people are dying. So it was interesting to, for me to see like, what are some of the parallels that were happening once people started getting this virus and how, how quickly people turn on one another and how quickly people see each other as diseased and things like that. This one was, was less like coronavirus and more like, I would say like the AIDS epidemic. It's just like, oh, I don't want to sit next to you. Like if you have this or like everybody clear the room or whatever. So so that was really nice in, in the ways that Nisi Shaw in the past sort of predicted that, that virus and that germ and, and how people would still act and be still having parties and shit. Like Walter Mosley did a really great job of setting up how people did and will act during a pandemic and epidemic. Yeah, I, he, he he did okay. You think he did okay? He did okay. I mean, there wasn't, there's no references to like face masks. There, yeah. And, and in this world, the virus happens very fast, like super, super fast. Like, yeah, it, it, it's... It's like that afternoon. <laughs> in the course of about six hours, like half the world is either dead or alive. Yeah. And it felt, but then in the early days of the pandemic, it did feel that way. It did feel like day by day, minute by minute, you were watching the news and X amount of diagnoses, X amount of deaths. Well, yeah. So, I mean, it was COVID-19. So it took place in 2019, right? So we had January, February, March, where in this story, it happens within like a week or something. Gotcha. Yeah. For right. Sure. So... So when you think about it, scientists had been saying, had been telling the Trump administration, you need to do something about this. You need to listen. Tr- Trump, you know, famously or infamously said, you yeah, know, he it's going to go away. He took all the notes. It's going to go away. Internalize that. Yeah. It's going to go away. So I, I guess the final story, I think the, the drama of that final story is we're introduced to two new characters we haven't seen before. And what happens is that one one black character, one white character, and this white character is sort of like a, um, I know, grew up around black people, at one mm-hmm. point says the N-word. Yeah, like he thinks he's down. He thinks he's down. And it was that, and he's friends with this black person who is like, dude, you, you can't say You're the like, N-word. stop being disrespectful. He was like, I didn't know you were so sensitive. It's like, sen- sensitive? You're a white person using the N-word. Right. Uh, that makes me sensitive. But they're, oh, okay. fr- I mean, they are friends and um, the white person dies sort of, sort of at the end. And it's sort of like, it's a sad death. You know, that's where the drama comes. But I, I thought that would be interesting because what I like about these collections is that there is this, you know, like racism exists. There's mm-hmm. a potential race war overhead. But at the same time, like there are quite a few people, black and white, different ethnicities who are friends with each other. Yes. And do hang out with each other and do interact. Before we get into some size, I also just want to say there was a hella sex in this book. There was... So much sex, um, which is interesting because I remember one time you went to this like N.K. Jemison virtual talk and the question you submitted to her was like, you write a lot about sex in your books. Like, tell me more about that. You write beautifully about the sex, like stylistically and things like that. And so I immediately thought of you as we went through these stories where there was not so much the sex. There was a range of sexual interactions. So there were a lot of. Uh, sex worker scenes or if there was a waitress at a club or something she was like butt ass naked 
And what, what did you think about just like the so much sex in the book? Well, men can't write women. Yeah. That's sort of what, what I was left with. Also, there's this one, there's a one story that takes place all on an island. And on this island, when you're in a prison, the name of this, I think it's called Angel's Island. So when you're on Angel's Island, you have no rights. Again, so think of America's, you know, justice system now, but dialed up to 100. Because I think there's an amendment to the Constitution that allows this to happen. And there's like physically a machine that's put on you, like a little jet pack, like a little pack that controls your emotions, it controls your urges yeah. and things like that. And the and the US government is using those packs on criminals to then put it on to the rest of human citizens. Yeah. They're like the guinea pigs. They're the guinea pigs. But there's a scene where this like woman doctor like pretends to give a prisoner a blowjob like um yeah. and then but she does that so that he can have an erection so that she can then shock him and take away his erection. Yeah. And I was like, oh man, women women sexu- sexually in this book are are not sexually aggressive. Treated. They're, they're awful. They're sexually assaulting men. They're like there are so many scenes of where like she forced my erection on me and things like that. It's I was awful. just like okay, so you so you wouldn't really call that sex in the book. Like what would you call it? No, no, that? yeah, it's it's sex. I mean just it's it's not realistic. I don't think Walter Mosley had you know beta readers at this time or sensitivity readers where you read something like N.K. Jemison, where most of her characters that she writes through the eyes are of most of them and all and considering all her books are women and when they do have sex it feels like actual sex yeah so as as we segue out I'm going to say that that was a sigh for me like that you you said it perfectly like when when men are trying to like write women in into these sex scenes and trying to do it in like a different way, but but writing it through the lens of like she forced my erection this she she damaged my stuff that like I put my finger in her mouth and she bit it because she liked it come for me baby I was just like Ooh, what is going on up in here so I, I would say that that was a sigh for me I, I don't I don't mind a lot of sex in a book but I just think it could have been more nuanced and all of the sexual scenes sort of fell into the category of what I just said what would you give the book in general overall because there was a lot of things that we really loved about it and at one point you also said you were like I think this is one of the best books we've ever read I would have liked to. What, first of all, his his neo-Nazism, that predictability was, I mean, brilliant, right? Like, we're seeing the rise of neo-Nazism. We're seeing, you know, Fox News commentators saying something like, um, you know, white America is under assault. Like, that is actually a mainstream belief, right? Mm-hmm. So the rise of neo-Nazism is something that Walter Mosley did very well. I don't think, I think he missed the mark in the fact that people don't consider what's happening now Nazism. Like we have eradicated that term Nazism or itsies. I think he calls them itsies in this book. And so I would have liked to see him treat white nationalism or white supremacy just a little bit more nuanced. I think he could have gone there. And I think it's a, right now it's a little bit too easy, especially since Godwin's Law. Are you familiar with Godwin's Law? I'm not. God's, Godwin's Law is basically one of these like internet laws where if there's a debate on an online discourse, eventually someone is going to be referred to as a Nazi or Hitler. Oh. Yeah. Okay. It's sort of like a fake law. But yeah. uh, so we're 
I'm we're living in post Godwin's law where it's almost become like cliche to just label the villains as Nazis. Mm -hmm. And so even now, like you, a Fox News anchor or someone who's saying like white culture is under attack, they would never, never in a million years be like Nazi sympathizers. They would not call themselves neo-Nazis, but they are embracing a form of white supremacy. And I think he could have unpacked that a little bit better because we're not really seeing the perspective from neo-Nazis. We're seeing from the perspective of people who are trying to fight the itsies or the neo-Nazis. Do you think that that's honestly just a test of the times because this book was written over 20 years ago? Yeah, I I think so. That's that's basically what what I believe. Yeah. Would you recommend that people read the book? Oh, absolutely. Please read this book. And it's short. It's short. And the great thing about it is that you could read every I think every story you could read insularly. Agree, Benjamin. you, You can. You can read this each story by itself. There is an overarching like narrative, but you could read the last story separately they can be standalones for I, sure yeah i i would be curious any listeners if you get future land like read the last story first and sort of read backwards and see if it has this if it hits the same i i find that would i would be actually very interested in that well y'all you, you heard it first here read the if you ain't first you're last <laughs> Then, with that being said, would you go ahead and warp up the show? In conclusion, even though Walter Mosley is a mystery writer, I'd welcome him into the science fiction community anytime. I really hope that he dabbles again into science fiction because Futureland was well worth it. Thanks, Ben. Thank you so much for listening to another episode of the Sci-Fi Sci. Next week, we're going to be watching a movie, y'all. We'll be watching Men in Black International, the 2019 film that was directed by F. Gary Gray, a black man. We got a black director. So we cannot wait to see Tessa Thompson in action. So be sure to watch MIB International, and we will see y'all next week for episode 30. Bye, y'all. Thank you for listening to Believe. You can show support to your host by subscribing to the show and giving us a five-star rating on your preferred platform. Check us out at Believe.com and search for B-L-E-A-V on YouTube.